Today on Texas Tells, we're talking to arbitration expert, Public Justice Executive Director Paul Bland about arbitration and losing America in the fine print. It's been a huge power grab by corporate America away from regular people, and the way they've succeeded in doing it is that no one was paying attention. You're listening to Texas Tells. I'm Tori Summerman. First, here's Deanna Govea with the news. Texas Supreme Court Justice Nathan Hecht has been let off the hook for violating campaign finance laws. In a settlement with the Texas Ethics Commission, the justice has agreed to pay a $1,000 fine for improperly accepting a six-figure legal discount. After Texas Watch filed a complaint with the commission in 2007, the TEC ruled that Hecht's acceptance of the discount exceeded campaign contribution limits and slapped him with a $29,000 fine. But the justice appealed the decision and stalled the case for seven years. Executive Director of Texas Watch Alex Winslow is far from satisfied with the court's decision to slash Heck's ethics fine. The bottom line is that Nathan Hecht is being let off the hook. This saga makes a mockery of so-called ethics enforcement. And apparently the way high-ranking officials can beat the rap in Texas is to simply delay the process indefinitely. The Texas Supreme Court must now decide if autopsies are a form of health care. After her husband died in a hospital in Katy, Texas, Linda Carswell wondered if the painkillers given by her husband's doctors had contributed to his death. She requested an independent autopsy, but there was one thing missing, his heart. The hospital's medical examiner removed her husband's heart without her consent, and the hospital refused to release the organ. But after an appeals court ordered the hospital to release the heart, independent medical experts questioned whether or not the heart provided was even human. Carswell sued the hospital for negligence and fraud in its handling of her husband's autopsy. Now, the hospital is appealing the case, arguing it falls under medical malpractice laws. If the hospital prevails, Carswell's case would be dismissed. In Texas, public hospitals can be accountability-free zones for white coat rape. Laura, a Houston mother of two, says she was raped by a doctor at Ben Taub Medical Center in November 2013 while she was in her hospital bed. Reports now reveal that the doctor's employer knew of a previous sexual assault allegation against him before placing him at Ben Taub. Unlike other states, Texas immunizes government institutions like Ben Taub and other public hospitals. The law shields public hospitals from accountability, even in cases of hiring someone with a history of predatory sexual assault allegations. A recent article in the Houston Chronicle has brought light to this imbalance in Texas law. Consumer groups have organized to make changes in the upcoming session, to ensure justice for survivors of sexual assault. To take action, visit www.texaswatch.org slash justice for survivors. After a widely circulated three-part series in the New York Times, Americans are learning about the dangers lurking in the fine print of the most innocuous transactions. Buried in their cell phone plans, rental car agreements, and credit card contracts, consumers have slowly signed away their Seventh Amendment right. But despite the prevalence of these agreements, Americans have largely been unaware of their use. Now, the issue is coming to light. We'll talk to arbitration expert Paul Bland about losing America in the fine print and what average consumers can do to protect themselves. So as more people learn what arbitration even is, what should they know? What are the key differences between a civil trial and arbitration? Well, 
Um, there, there are a bunch of problems with arbitration for a regular uh, individual. I mean, the system is overwhelmingly rigged towards the corporation against individuals. So in any transaction between a corporation and an individual, the corporation always writes the arbitration clause. So they pick the company who's going to run the arbitration. And the arbitration companies are all sort of competing for that business, and they compete by uh, designing systems that are designed to make the corporation happy rather than the individual. So you've got, you know, two parties in a dispute, and they have essentially written rules that tend to favor one side. So if you had a case against a car dealership because you had a car that was a lemon, the, the transmission doesn't work, and you took it back six times, and they still were not able to fix it, you want to bring a case under a lemon law. So if they, so they force you into arbitration. Instead of having a jury of regular people, what you're going to end up with is um, somebody who's almost certainly going to be a corporate lawyer who mostly defends car dealers is going to be your decision maker. And so that's a, that's a pretty bad system. Um, there's no judicial review at all of arbitration decisions mm-hmm. um, with almost no exceptions. So an error of law by an arbitrator is not grounds for overturning a decision. Um, the Supreme Court said that if an arbitrator's fact-finding was silly, that wasn't grounds for overturning a decision. That gives enormous power to the person who's being picked by the corporation. Um, and then there's there's a lot of secrecy. The system is not transparent. It's very hard as an individual to find out what arbitrators have done in the past, how the system works. A lot of arbitration clauses and rules make all the facts in a dispute sort of secret. And then arbitration clauses always make it impossible, uh, or nearly always make it impossible, for individuals to group together and bring a class action. And so that has a that has a huge impact on a lot of cases. I mean, there are a lot of cases that don't make sense to have class actions, but there are certain types of cases like, so for example, um, say your employer suddenly decides to uh, fire you because you're a woman. They say, we just need more men around here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you would have a, um, um, you know, in that setting, you have an individual case. But suppose you work at a big company and you start getting wind of the idea that men are getting paid more. If you have an individual case where you can only take discovery essentially about yourself and um, they're not going to allow you to take very much discovery because it's only an individual case, that's very, it's a very hard case to prove. If you have a class action where people can join together and can spend the money to really dig into the statistics around the employer and so forth, then the pay equity laws start having a lot more teeth. And so there are a bunch of cases where um, if you can't, if you're, if, if everyone's atomized and they're forced to operate and um, be treated as, uh, as single individuals, um, uh, there, there are just certain types of cases that are going to be wiped away completely. So th- those are all things that consumers should know about, and most most of them don't, but they're starting to learn. Right. So I understand that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has proposed a rule to prohibit those class action bans and arbitration. Can you explain exactly what that looks like and what changes those would make? Okay. So um, the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, was required by the Dodd-Frank Act to do a study of whether um, uh, forced arbitration clauses were harmful to consumers and whether they had a significant impact on uh, on consumer protection. Um, So as a result of the um, the evidence that came out of the study, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has proposed uh, a rule that would say that no lender can use an arbitration clause if that arbitration clause would ban um, uh, individuals from bringing or participating in a class action. And so it's a very significant and very important um, rule change. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, a lot of lenders right now that have been operating um, all sorts of deceptive and predatory scams and been able to get away with it because they had the class action bans embedded in their arbitration clause will be forced to follow the law. And it's, it's going to be um, one of the most important steps in consumer protection in the last 20 years. 
I understand that a lot of judges' hands are tied. A lot of the times they don't agree with the way they have to enforce this, but they're sort of forced to. One judge said in the New York Times article that he had disappointed Thomas Jefferson and John Adams by enforcing the arbitration. And I mean, that quote, along with one woman who said, I can't believe this is America after going through the arbitration process, that just really struck me. How is this going on in America? How is this stripping us of our Seventh Amendment right? And we're just okay with it. Then I think that one of the things that's really permitted this to to, um, expand is I think that forced arbitration spread because most Americans weren't aware of it. And because I think that when you explain to Americans, uh, uh, polling data shows that both Republicans and Democrats, men and women, people of all ages, really hate the idea of a company writing in one of these clauses of taking away your right to go to court, taking away your right to, to have a jury trial and so forth. It's an incredibly unpopular idea. And so the politicians who are taking campaign contributions are in a position to ignore popular views, if not that many people in the population are know about it, as uh, more and more people understand this problem. I think that the, I think that it's going to become more and more difficult for companies to prop up this system. So um, you touched on this a little bit, but how exactly are arbiters chosen in the first place? Can anyone be an arbiter? There are uh, very big companies that that, um, do arbitration services, and there's a bunch of really small companies sort of scattered around the country where it's very hard to find out much information about them. But in general, the arbitration companies, so the American Arbitration Association, for example, and others like that, um, have a roster of arbitrators who they pick. And so when there's a case that goes in front of them, if it's a smaller case, they'll just pick an individual arbitrator and assign that person. Um, for certain types of larger cases, they'll give you, say, five names. And both, you know, the, the person bringing the case and the, and the defendant in the case can each strike uh, one or two of the names and you end up with who's left. What happens is, is that because the arbitration companies are trying to curry favor with the corporations who write the clauses, is that the overwhelming majority of the time, the arbitrators are lawyers who work in the same industry. So if you have a case against a, um, a nursing home, in all likelihood, the arbitrator is going to be somebody who principally represents healthcare providers, wow. um, which is really different from having a regular jury where you don't have that kind of sort of built-in bias. Mm-hmm. And so the arbitration system really is fairly um, rigged against the individual. So beyond picking the arbiter, um, I understand that those who write the clauses actually get to pick where the arbitration takes place as well. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So um, there there have been several instances in which corporations will write arbitration clauses that make individuals have to travel across the country. So, for example, there was a case where a woman who lived in Long Island, who'd been cheated out of a fairly small sum of money, had the arbitration clause said she had to arbitrate her case in Phoenix. And so she says, she said, well, that's completely unfair. I, you know, for me to have to travel to Phoenix to arbitrate a thousand dollar case is right. crazy. And, um, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit upheld the arbitration clause and said, um, we're sorry, but you would have to go to Phoenix to challenge the provision that, 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 that the arbitrator gets to decide whether or not this is fair. Right. So as I understand it, arbitration originally started as a way to solve disputes between two corporations, right? That, that's basically right. Yeah. Right. So how is that? What are the key differences in using arbitration between two corporations versus a corporation and its customer? Well, when you have two parties of equal power writing an arbitration clause between them, what you tend to see is arbitration systems that are not rigged in favor of one side or another. Uh, because the arbitrators need both sets of companies to like them in order to write them into the clause, 
they tend to be much more genuinely neutral. So in arbitrations between large corporations and international shipping and so forth, you don't see the kinds of abuses that you're seeing in consumer cases and employment cases. But in when you have an arbitrator who's going to hear a whole bunch of cases involving a big company, you know, uh, Halliburton, for example, um, and then there's only one individual, the individual is only going to be there the one time. Mm-hmm. There tends to be a bias in favor of the repeat player in terms of the company that's writing the clause, in terms of the company that's making sure that they get paid. And so it, there's a gigantic difference between sort of business to business arbitration and uh, business against individual arbitration. Mm. Okay, so one of the really interesting parts of the New York Times series was the third part where they talked about religious arbitration. Um, Can you explain exactly how consumers can be forced into religious arbitration and those implications? So uh, under the Federal Arbitration Act, you know, the Supreme Court has said that we have this strong federal policy in favor of arbitration, that if parties agree to it, uh, agree to arbitrate, that, that no one's going to review whether or not the arbitrator got the law right. So increasingly what you're seeing is that certain companies that are owned by people who have very strong um, religious views are writing arbitration clauses that say that if their employees or their consumers disagree with them, that instead of having an arbitrator who would be applying the normal laws in the United States, they'll have an arbitrator who will decide the case based on the arbitrator's understanding of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And this is a really serious problem, particularly in the employment settings. There have been a number of times where we've been approached in our practice by, by um, uh, particularly women who have worked for an employer and been treated badly. We've had, client, we've had potential clients who were sexually harassed, who were wow. um, beaten, and this kind of thing. And then the Christian arbitrators, their, their reading of scriptures has a bunch of language about how uh, the man is supposed to guide and correct the woman and all this kind of stuff. And so there are women who are going in and saying you know, they've been um, sexually harassed or treated badly or discriminated against, and the arbitrators are saying, you have to recognize that the man is more, is, you know, that God intended for the man to have more power and so forth. And so there have been some really um, terrible decisions in which the normal civil rights laws like Title VII have been thrown out in favor of this particular reading of scriptures that some guys have that give men much, much more power than women. Wow. And I think it's a, I think it's a crazy, deeply upsetting problem. The thing that I thought was striking about it is, a lot of the issues around forced arbitration are, are a little bit abstract. So you talk about, well, there's no real appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? Well, here I think that it, it, it shows that if you give one party to a dispute too much power and that they have the power to simply ignore what the regular laws are of the United States and do what they want and no court's going to overturn them, that can lead to terrible results. Um, the other thing that struck me about these cases is right now the arbitration issue has been far too partisan where a vast majority of elected Republicans are, um, are sort of backing the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the, and the large banks in, um, in allowing forced arbitration. But if the religious arbitration would begin, would begin to move to religions that, um, that uh, some conservatives are not very comfortable with, right. so if you had you know, Islamic law and you had a bunch of people who you know, were, were themselves or had their spouse or family or something working for a company that was deciding um, disputes between them and the company based on Islamic law, would that, would that be okay with them? Um, my guess is that that, is that that won't be. Right. So can you apply any rule of law into an arbitration contract? Could you, say, apply the laws of Federation and Star Trek if you wanted to <laughs> and then hold them to that? It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. I've seen oral arguments in the Supreme Court in which some justices have said, have drawn some sort of outlandish hypotheticals 
and said, well, you know, certainly that wouldn't be okay. And so, you know, I think that there probably would be some outer bounds. So one of the more famous court decisions where a court said that even if an arbitrator's ruling of law was wacky, they use the word wacky, that it's still going to be upheld, they did say, well, if we had an arbitrator that was charged to decide the case by witchcraft, we would probably strike that down or something like that. But in general, the rulings of arbitrators are being upheld all the time. And, you know, there there may be some hypothetical line beyond which, you know, some court wouldn't go, but uh, it doesn't come up very often right now. Right. So the New York Times three-part series has obviously got a lot of attention. Do yeah. you think that this will be able to start some meaningful change on arbitration? I think so. I mean, I think that um, the vast majority of Americans uh, have had no idea of the rights that they're losing in, in their employment contracts and consumer contracts. Um, they simply are not not familiar with it. So, you know, in the in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau study, they asked a bunch of people who had credit cards, you know, do you know if there's anything to do with street resolution or arbitration in the um, credit card agreement? And very, very few people did. Then even when they showed people the arbitration clause and pointed it to them and said, here, look at this, only 7% of the people who read the arbitration clause understood that meant they couldn't take a, a case to court. Right. It's been a huge power grab by corporate America away from regular people. And the way they've succeeded in doing it is that no one was paying attention. Mm-hmm. So the New York Times series galvanized a ton of attention in a very short period. The word arbitration was trending on Twitter you know, between like LeBron James and um, Kardashians right. for the first time ever um, that, that so many people were paying attention to it. And then there have been a couple of other things in, you know, in a very short time that I think are the sorts of things that might seep into the public consciousness. So um, um, Charlie Sheen, if somebody went over to his house, um, he made them sign an arbitration clause of secrecy provisions. Oh, my goodness. So um, there have been um, lawsuits where, where people brought cases against him who were infected where he knew that he was – HIV positive and didn't tell them, and then they found out later. Uh, and then he used the, the arbitration provisions to get secrecy for all of these people. Um, so that, that the secrecy from the system enabled him to go on and endanger a bunch of other people. It'll be interesting to see whether these types of stories pick, get picked up and resonate with, with many people. Okay, so what can individuals do? What, what are their alternatives? So there are some places in which it's possible to find some actors in the market that don't have arbitration clauses. So, for example, with lending, um, almost no credit unions use arbitration clauses. Oh, interesting. So a lot of people who really want to have more rights um, will not go to a big bank like Bank of America or something like that, but instead will go to a credit union, um, which is going to be more consumer-friendly and will not have the provisions to strip you of your rights. Then there are some companies, as I say, that have buried in the fine print is language that says you can opt out of the arbitration clause if you want. And what they're counting on is that nobody reads the fine print and nobody pays attention. But if consumers become increasingly aware of it and began acting on that, that would be something that would be valuable. So, for example, nearly all the nursing home clauses I've seen recently have um, opt-out language. It's just nobody reads it. Mm -hmm. But if consumers paid attention to this and knew about it, they could begin um, opting out of those clauses on a large scale. Another thing is that consumers can complain. So General Mills, in the spring of 2014, uh, adopted an arbitration clause that had a bunch of very unusual and strange provisions. So one of them was if you went to their website, um, that you were deemed as having agreed to their arbitration clause, or if you liked General Mills on Facebook. And then they had all these games wow. for children. So children would go onto their website, play a game, and by having played the game, that would supposedly have bound them to uh, uh, to an arbitration clause. And so when this broke, 
um, there was there was a huge amount of public outcry, and tons of people emailed the company, complained to the company, put on social media their concerns about this, circulated articles about it, and General Mills actually backed away from the arbitration clause in the space of about one week. And I think that um, if consumers would start to care about this and start to complain about it and start to raise a fuss and make a lot of noise, I think I think that you would see many companies move away from forced arbitration fairly quickly. Texas Tells is a production of Texas Watch, a nonpartisan consumer watchdog group based in Austin, Texas. You can find us at www.texaswatch.org. All the music for Texas Tells was recorded in-house by Deputy Director Ware Wendell.